go. And that theme I called Getting Down. <laughs> and I filled out the title by saying Getting Down to Direct Experience. I think it's a way to, in, a very, in an accessible way, to clarify the core of practice in a way which points to how we might implement that practice in our daily lives. It particularly is an unpacking of the nature of confusion or delusion, which is right at the center of Buddhist practice. It's actually at the center of many spiritual, philosophical, and scientific traditions, the attempt to see clearly the phenomena of the world and of our own minds. In the traditions of the Buddha, which really parallel a number of Western traditions, particularly those coming from the Greeks, from Plato and Aristotle and so forth, the core problem of human life is ignorance. It's not evil, actually. In fact, what we sometimes call evil or destructive actions is primarily understood in terms of ignorance. So there's not some huge dichotomy of good and bad people, you know, um, an axis, so to speak, (laughs) of of evil, but rather the the problem, (laughs) the problem is confusion and ignorance, and actually the dynamics that are there as the basis for some of the most destructive actions on the earth aren't all that different from what we see in our own minds. Which I think can give some humility and some perspective. That's what I want to unpack further today. I want to review some what I covered last time and then go into some further uh, territory and and really, uh, throughout, have an emphasis on practice. The basic idea that, that I'll present is that we often become far removed from really knowing and being present to direct experience. Typically, when we get scared, startled, reactive, Uh, confused, we move away from direct experience into concepts, stories, interpretations, assumptions, conclusions, belief structures, and so forth, which in themselves are part of human life and not the problem per se, but they do become a problem when they get disconnected from experience. And when we use them, as almost like defense mechanisms so we don't have to feel or know what we're actually experiencing. Then they're quite problematic. And that um, being caught in, as it were, a kind of virtual reality that's far removed from experience and which we sometimes have trouble even getting back to experience. We get caught in beliefs, assumptions about ourselves, about others, about the world, is one basic way to understand the nature of confusion or delusion. 
and it's very um, specifically pointed to in the, in the classical teachings of the Buddha as, I think, uh, a primary way to understand the nature of human confusion, ignorance, and delusion. And it's something which we know what to do about. It's not some great metaphysical problem, but rather it's uh, a way that we move away from direct experience, and our entire training is to help us to come, as it were, further down to direct experience, and then use concepts, interpretations, and assumptions wisely in connection with really knowing our direct experience. So that's what I want to uh, talk about today. Um, in Buddhist tradition, there's a term called samsara, which, refer, which has the connotations of being lost in circular loops, which is very much like a sense of being removed from direct experience and being in kind of vicious circles which go round and round, separated from experience. And I'll, but I'll, I'll unpack that further and say, say more what that means. The main reason that we go far removed from experience is that our minds and hearts and bodies become reactive. In other words, we don't like what's happening in our experience and we want to get away from it. So it could be that I'm experiencing unpleasant sensations and I want to get away from it so I go into an idea or a fantasy. Uh, I may have an unpleasant experience with um, a friend or with a, an interaction and I may experience anger or sadness, but I may typically go into blaming the other person or blaming myself and stay in the tape loop of reliving that over and over again. That's probably quite familiar to us how we do that. And that would be an example of how this happens. And we know from psychology that we can, on the basis sometimes of early experiences, um, in a sense have um, a difficult territory or a wounded territory that, we, that almost gets submerged. We don't even, we, we lose touch with it. You know, we, if, if I had a difficult experience occur as a child in which, let's say, I was, I felt um, abandoned, something like that, for a period of time or, or in some ways systematically, that that may be too hard to face and I may develop all sorts of beliefs like people aren't trustworthy or if I have a close relation with someone, I will be abandoned. And those, you know, those in, in that kind of case, one uh, can't really face the difficult, painful experience of feeling abandoned. And one lives through fear and through beliefs about people that are rooted to some extent in not being able to face that experience. And of course, one thing that happens in successful psychotherapy is one learns to return to that experience relive it some and heal it, and therefore no longer be caught in the tape loops about beliefs, about abandonment, you know, if, if that is successful. There's a very strong cultural aspect to this being lost in thought 
namely Western culture. <laughs> I was thinking of a few things related to that. Uh, I was thinking of uh, a great uh, Thai teacher, Achan Buddha Dasa, was once asked, what do you think of Western civilization? And he, he, he answered, lost in thought. You know, that, that we, maybe more than other cultures, I think for better and worse, I'm not saying this to say we're hopeless, bad, lost in thought. I think it comes with some territory, obviously, which is, has a lot of positive aspects. People are very lost these days in virtual reality. You know, and, um, you know, I was, who was I talking to? I was talking, on my trip, I was talking to a former student of mine. He was talking about how his uh, 15-year-old daughter, uh, often they, she and her friends stand around with their cell phones in groups, don't relate to each other, but are texting people who are somewhere else. And live in that kind of reality and have rather little interaction with each other. <laughs> yeah. And so there's some in, yeah, interesting behavior forms developing. And so that, that, um, that statement by uh, Buddha Dasa always makes me remember what uh, the, uh, the response to the same question attributed to Gandhi, where he was asked, What do you think of Western civilization? you know, I don't know, like 1930 or something, he was asked that, and his answer was, it would be a good idea. (laughs) 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 I I was also thinking of uh, the famous statement some of you read in, you know, like Philosophy 101 from Descartes, which is, you know, who's understood as providing the framework of the modern period of the last three or four hundred years, four hundred years maybe, you know, his famous statement, I think, therefore I am, you know, which has always been interesting to um, Buddhist, uh, uh, Buddhist practitioners who would like to say, well, he went a little bit beyond the data, you know, or that, that he might, and I'll come back to this model in a moment, but that he uh, actually uh, properly speaking, he, he might have said, I think, therefore I think. <laughs> or maybe, I think, and then I think that I am. But I think, therefore I am, is, you can see, it's moving away from direct experience. And I use this model, which is uh, a helpful model, just at giving an image of this movement away from direct experience, uh, called the ladder of inference, which comes from the field of uh, organizational development, was was developed by a man named Chris uh, Ardress, who taught at the Harvard Business School. And and it's this simple model which has some parallels with the the theme that we find in Buddhist practice, which is that there is, when we look to our experience, we see that there's something like an infinite amount of data. And he he was referring more to how organizations work but I think he wanted to apply it to individual um, perception and the, and the way the mind moves away from perception. That, and so he said that there's a kind of infinite data, just as right now, there are all sorts of things we could focus on right now in this room. And we're just focusing on a few things. Some of you are focusing on me talking. Some of you are thinking about lunch, <laughs> perhaps. Maybe not too many. 
because of the interest of the talk. <laughs> but if I, if, I have a, if I have a bad moment or two, lunch may come up on the internal uh, thought screen, so, so to speak. So um, in any case, uh, there are all sorts of things we can focus on. We only focus on a few. You know, and similarly in meditation, we focus on the breath. And then perhaps on the basis of what we are actually experiencing, we may have meaning develop. You know, and last time we looked at that sun, there can be meaning, assumptions, conclusions. And I wasn't encouraging us to be necessarily real precise about the, the distinction between meanings, assumptions, and so forth. But it's more that they get more and more complex and abstract. And so we might be hearing the talk and hear a few words and be listening and maybe the meaning comes, um, that's a good idea or that's interesting or something like that. That could be evidence of meaning and then you might make an assumption um, or make make some kind of assumption. There may be other good thoughts coming. I better listen more carefully and not think about lunch so much you know, or something like that, or then I might go further and be uh, reaching conclusions. Uh, I should really just make it really clear that I come every Wednesday. I don't want to miss anything that comes on Wednesdays, or, you know, or then you might say, and I, uh, we might start thinking, oh yes, and then I should really do more retreats, and when's the next time I can do a retreat? Hmm, I need to make more money for one thing, you know, and then then the uh, talk recedes from, recedes from attention. Or we might go, you know, we might go further and further with our assumptions and so forth. And the idea is that we, do, we are doing this all the time. It's a helpful model in that, again, it's not to say that we don't need these, um, these ways of finding meaning and having assumptions and so forth. The question is how to do it skillfully and how to stay grounded in direct experience. That's really what's being pointed to here. And in a way, the entirety of the teachings are pointing to becoming more and more grounded in direct experience and seeing, seeing that experience more carefully. And so there's, there's a way in which our core practice of mindfulness is about especially bringing us in connection with direct experience or more direct experience, that we are mindful of the body. For many of us, our meditation practice has brought us in touch with our bodies in ways that we weren't beforehand. That's certainly true for me. When I I mentioned last time I was here that I had this sense one day when I was a student walking down the path and not feeling my body at all, not feeling emotions, but just thinking nonstop. And, that, and this was familiar as to how my, I live my life, just thinking. I said, I'm just like consciousness on a pole. I'm just, you know, there's no connection with my body. It was a kind of an interesting but scary insight that you know, probably others of us have had at times. And so in taking up mindfulness practice, there's almost like a return to the body. And there can also be a return to the emotions. It's there. It's maybe stronger for some of us than others. Some of us may have not been so disconnected from the body or, or emotions, but many of us, and there, there are gender issues related to that, you know, in terms of 
there are differences, I think, between men and women and different cultural differences as well. And so we, we, in our mindfulness practice, we connect more with direct experience. We come to the body, we come to the emotions, we, we track thoughts, and we particularly watch how thoughts turn into interpretations, how they, they proliferate, how something difficult happens, and particularly when, when we have, have uh, something that we don't like, how the mind tends to go up the ladder. That's really the core uh, pointer here, is that one of the main reasons we go up the ladder is that we, something is happening that we don't like or that we really like, and we try to push away the unpleasant and think about it and try to have some strategy for getting rid of it. Again, the example of a difficult interaction with someone can give uh, the example that's, I think, very easy to find in our experience, that I have a difficult interaction with someone. I'm, it may be the fourth time I've had it. And I don't just usually sit with the anger, the irritation, the thoughts, but my mind starts working out strategies. It may start psychologizing the person. I may come to blame and judgment. I may come to conclusions, you know, um, about the person. And when there's reactivity, those thoughts conclusions, assumptions are often not very grounded. They're driven somewhat compulsively. Same thing when we're trying to grab hold of something. That's something that's really being uh, pointed to. And so the mindfulness practice has us more rest with direct experience and then watch how there tends to be on the basis of the thinking, the perception, particularly driven by reactivity, what we could call a proliferation of thinking. And there's actually a technical term in the Buddhist psychology for this. It's called papancha. P-A-P-A-N-C-A. It almost sounds like what it, what it means. It's typically translated as conceptual proliferation. And there's a sense of, of going up, you know, going up the ladder. I think last time I gave quite a, what for me was quite a powerful quotation. Let me see if I can find this. What one perceives, one thinks about. What one thinks about, one complicates with associations, memories, and ideas. And then these notions assail and overwhelm a person. That's papancha. Or um, here's some other ways of understanding that. Let's see. The thought manifests as word. The word manifests as deed. The deed develops into habit the habit hardens into character. So watch the thought and its ways with care and let it spring from love, born out of concern for all being. As the shadow follows the body, as we think, so we become. So be really careful with that. A Tibetan teacher I've worked with named Sony Rinpoche, he said it this way, We believe the first thought, and then the second, and then soon the fifth. By the tenth thought, we are sure that the fifth thought is reality. (laughs) And from the um, Indian teacher, Nisargadatta, we miss the real by lack of attention and create the unreal 
by excess of imagination. And so we're really invited to study it. How do we go up the ladder? And again, not to say that going up the ladder is necessarily a problem, because even to this whole talk, in a way, everything that would be associated with wisdom is not staying at the level of direct experience. It's giving counsel about how to wisely use direct experience and go up the ladder. So it, this talk itself is up the ladder a little bit, right? So, it's, it's, so the point is not about uh, getting rid of all concepts, thinking, interpretations, assumptions, conclusions, beliefs, but being wise about them. And in particular, noticing how this automatic papancha keeps on happening in our experience and keeps on, keeps on occurring typically on the basis when, of reactivity, of when the mind is reactive and we just go places with it. Because we're trying in a way to protect ourselves, but we don't really track what's going on. And I mentioned how this happens personally, this happens interpersonally, and this happens collectively. And for me, it, in really seeing this phenomenon more and more, you know, like being in a, I don't know, in a group and noticing how there might be a difficult interaction and both parties start going up the ladder. In teaching conflict and observing conflict, one of the main phenomena that occurs in conflict is that the parties go up the ladder and they get into competing positions and sometimes competing ideologies. And the role of a peacemaker is to bring the parties further down on the ladder of inference, down more to direct experience, so that people can say, that really, this is what happened to me, this were my emotions, this really hurt, and so it can possibly open up compassion. You know, so a skillful way, let's say, if there was an interpersonal conflict, and probably most of us sometimes do this, interpersonal conflict, if one can stay as, as close to direct experience as possible and say, this is what I felt, this is what I thought, I was, you know, I went here, and both parties do that with each other, and there's, you know, goodwill and intention at reconciliation, that can be the basis for a deepening of the relationship. When, you know, and just simply to say, this was my experience, which is bringing it down. So, um, the role of a peacemaker often is to, to help design a process in which people get closer to direct experience. And so we can see that interpersonally, we can see it personally, and we can also see how so much of collective experience and social experience occurs way up the ladder. You know, and you know, I gave an example last time from uh, foreign policy in the United States. You know, and I was trying not to be particularly partisan because I think it happens, as it were, with both parties. But, but you know, I gave an example of the um, phenomena in the Iraq War where, where an analysis showed that actually decision-making um, had a very, very um, remote relationship to information. That, that, it, that there were, there were decision-making processes which in many ways um, made the, um, were based essentially on ideological positions. 
and that the actual information coming, let's say, from Iraq almost never reached the decision makers or was actually not wanted by them. You know, and this, there were, I, I mentioned an article by Mark Danner. Maybe I'll just read one paragraph that I didn't read before. Um, let's see. As the precious stream of flickering knowledge travels up the chain from those on the shell-pocked dangerous ground collecting it to those in Washington offices ultimately making decisions based upon it, the problem of what we really know intensifies. Policymakers peering second, third, fourth hand into a twilight world must learn a patient and humble skepticism, or else confronted with an ambiguous reality they, they do not like, they turn away, ignoring the shadowy, shifting landscape, and forcing their eyes stubbornly towards their own ideological light. Unable to find clarity, they impose it. And elsewhere it says, um, information from the ground um, goes through all sorts of barriers before it finally gets to decision makers. And the managers, um, it says, talent and experience as many of them were, seem to have willfully collaborated for reasons of ego, her ambition, or ideological hubris in making themselves collectively blind to what was actually happening. So that was, a, you know, I think that's often true. I mentioned myself working in the U.S. Congress when I was in college and being really struck by that kind of phenomenon, that there's sometimes like a willful, willful almost, disdain for actually real information. <laughs> And so when we see, and not always, of course, and, uh, but, but quite often there is that case, you know. I think it's the case with a lot of the discussion of climate change, for example, right? There's often a willful attempt not to look at what is actually known. And so it's, it can be scary, you know. And when we look at this phenomena collectively, interpersonally, and personally, we may see it more and more, that people continually, because of reactivity, go up the ladder and become far removed from direct experience and live in something like a virtual reality dominated by papancha. This is a definition, really, of confusion or delusion. Can, can I wait till I finish? Because I'll be, I'll be just a little bit and we can have a discussion. And so what to do about all of this? Um, I'll give a few practices. And I actually wanted to mention one, one or two other pieces One of the core dimensions by which we go up the ladder is we become far removed from from our bodies and from emotion. You know, that it is caught in a kind of thinking. And so one of the ways that we can practice, I think skillfully, is, is to return more and more to the body and to the emotions. I think culturally we are often far removed from the body, you know, and from emotions. I think, again, differences in in conditioning. Uh, but that, that our, um, our training often, or our conditioning, takes us away from really being closely connected with our senses and connect with our emotions. So what to do then? Our practice, in a way, points us towards working to be more grounded in direct experience and to be able to track when the mind is moving towards habitual thinking and moving up the ladder. And 
we can track it, we can see when it's compulsive, we can see when certain experience occurs, let's say, with, you know, probably very common with someone close to us or a partner, and our mind just goes right to that favorite complaint, right? This happens, I go to this complaint very, very quickly. So, if our practices are to go down the ladder, how to do that? And I want to mention maybe six or eight ways to do that and invite us each to work with one or two of them at a time. So, how to, how to go down the ladder? Remembering that our core practice, really, particularly, is to go down the ladder to more direct experience and particularly pay attention to when we're reactive. You know, I haven't stressed it so much this time, but reactivity, not, you know, some kind of pushing away of something because it's unpleasant, or grabbing hold of something because we really want it, often in a compulsive or unconscious way, is the driving force that we're looking for. When we're not doing that, the thoughts and the interpretations may be used more neutrally or skillfully. It's the reactivity that really is the issue. And the center of our practice is to work to transform reactivity so we are much less reactive and much more responsive. In other words, so in a given moment, we can be aware of what's happening and say, do I want to continue thinking like this? Do I want to continue acting like this? What's, do I want to follow that reaction? And mindfulness and practice gives us a choice so we're not so compulsively bound where we're just locked in thinking and it's proliferating in a, in a way compulsively. So how to work with this? how to move towards that general responsiveness. So generally, the whole purpose of practice is to be responsive moment after moment. That's it, really. There's nothing more that we could say. It's to not be driven by reactivity, and it's to be responsive. You know, there's that beautiful quotation from the 10th century Zen master, which I love so much, and use, and which is where he's asked for the meaning of enlightenment, for the meaning of awakening. And he doesn't give a metaphysical answer. He doesn't give some complicated answer. He says the meaning of being awake is to respond appropriately moment by moment. His answer was appropriate response is the meaning of awakening. And that's really what all of this is pointing to. Can we respond rather than react? But to do that, especially in this culture with our conditioning, we have to be aware of the tendencies to go up the ladder. We have to know the way that works personally, and collectively. So how to do that? A few things. Track thoughts. Really notice thoughts. Our mindfulness practice prepares us for that. To really track our thinking carefully. To particularly notice reactive thoughts and repetitive thoughts. To track them. And tracking means simply notice that they're happening. Some of the stronger ones will take us away for a while. And that's what we do in our practice. We We try to notice them, and if we're taken away for 10 minutes, we notice it, and then we come back. And in doing that, the next time, we're only away for eight minutes. That's how it works. You know, we see it more clearly. When we notice enough, and we have enough mindfulness, we're not taken away so much. So track the thoughts, really, really crucial. Track the emotions. Often, um, difficult emotions will trigger proliferating thoughts. Can I really track emotions, stay with emotions? One of the 
most powerful aspects of our practice is the ability to stay with strong emotions without having them take us away and take us over. So we need training in that. We need to be able to, to do that. Another core practice is to learn more and more to be at the level of the body. So anything that helps us be more grounded in the body is crucial, especially in this culture. That, so it means to, to be with the breath, to do walking meditation. When you take a walk, feel your body. Stay with your body during daily, the flow of daily life if you can. I once made an intention when I was a student and I was doing a lot of walking. Every time I'm walking, it's going to be walking meditation. And I could feel myself getting more in touch with the body. That's especially important in our culture because we're often so far removed from the body. And what I have found in working with people also is that sometimes when people have really, really active minds and are getting lost quite a bit, sometimes meditation helps, but sometimes it's the, the, the minds stay really active. And sometimes what's actually more efficacious is intervening at the level of the body, doing something like qigong that ha- can have a calming effect on the nervous system some types of yoga, some maybe a lot of walking with real awareness of the body. And I have found in working with people that often the grounding in the body really helps the thoughts to proliferate much less. In some ways, for some people, more effectively actually than meditation with the breath or just tracking thoughts would, would do. And of course, those would be a kind of meditation. So I'm not, maybe not to polarize them. But grounding in the body can be really, really helpful. To track the sense of unpleasant and unpleasant in the body, really, really crucial. One of the four foundations of mindfulness pointed to by the Buddha because it's that sense of pleasant or unpleasant that often starts things proliferating. And if we can really stay with something and say, that doesn't feel good, or this feels really great. And to know that, we often can watch the mind uh, proliferating. I was thinking of a friend who, uh, who has this really skillful technique, which I've heard that a few other people have. When someone says something that seems a little mean or nasty, she says out loud, ouch. At first I thought it was just kind of cute, you know, and, and not so significant. But as I've reflected on the issues that we're looking at today, it's actually very significant. It's basically knowing that didn't feel good. That permits me to really stay with my own experience and not to sort of instantly go into defense mechanisms, which is we, many of us would tend to do, like to say something right back in a snappy way, right? Or to withdraw or to get angry or to get in a fight or whatever. To actually know that was unpleasant. Very, very skillful. So I'm mentioning quite a few of these. Maybe I should give a handout on, yeah. on, on way, ways to, ways to uh, get down. <laughs> you know, uh, ten ways to get down for your health and the health of others. <laughs> you know, but that's really what we're, in essence, that's what we're talking about. So maybe, maybe I can prepare a handout on that. So to you know, track thoughts, track emotions, uh, be with the body, track the sense of pleasant or unpleasant, particularly be on the lookout for reactivity. That's right at the center of our practice. So we kind of have a radar. You can say every morning. I mean, it's not as dramatic as saying, I will be filled by love. 
but you could say something. Maybe you could actually do both. Not not to say, okay, say I will be filled by love today, but also say I will track reactivity because <laughs> they're they're connected. You know, and to really uh, be on the lookout for reactivity, going to a situation, a meeting, where you know it might be hard, and say I'm going to try to notice reactivity. Myself getting ticked off or. Again, reactivity could be really, really super excited to the point where we go off somewhere as well and happy, or seemingly happy. Um, and so to, to, to stay with it, to stay noticing that reactivity. And as I mentioned last time, I think in, in looking at all of this, it can be sometimes, especially when we look and see how pervasive going up the ladder is and how we could look around us and see a certain amount of, you know, other people, the culture lost in this way. It can be a little bit um, painful. And so I think it's very important to hold all of this somehow with compassion, to do loving-kindness and compassion practices. And if you feel yourself going, just, oh my God, everyone's doing this. I better make an extra copy of the letter of inference and just hand it out to my family and friends. and become very popular with them. <laughs> so, um, but to hold everything with compassion because this, again, I'm stating it in a way which maybe is a little understated, but this is the basic mechanism of confusion in the human species that we're looking at. And it's a deeply rooted tendency. And it is connected with suffering. And so to hold all of this somehow with, with compassion So my suggestion is that we take each, maybe one or two of these practices and work with them. And to, you know, it could be to, to particularly attend to the proliferation of thoughts or to attend to the ways that uh, we go up the ladder where we're reactive, to track the body, to stay with the feeling tone, pleasant or unpleasant. Uh, all of these are interconnected. And when we work with them and we come down to more direct experience and we stay sometimes with what's difficult, there can be some way that we stay with what's difficult or painful. Some of it sometimes opening up to what was painful from the past. And in doing that, attention to what's difficult or attention to reactivity can transform it. In other words, we can, through awareness, attention, mindfulness, compassion, work with reactivity so that we, as it were, um, uproot the tendencies towards reactivity or uh, to bring healing to those areas which are wounded or where there's pain. And when that happens, reactivity um, ceases to happen in the same way. And there can be, can be more of a balance. Maybe I'll finish with uh, a reading. There's, there's a beautiful text in the classical teachings uh, from the Majjhima Nikaya, number 18. It's called the Honeyball Sutta. And it's taken to be like a honeyball because it's so sweet. I mean, I think, I don't know, in those times, 
talking about these phenomena in depth was considered to be very sweet. For you, it might not be, sweet might not be the first word that comes to your mind at the end of the talk, but it might be, you know, maybe interesting, insightful, but, but in those days, they thought this was really sweet, um, this material. So here's the, here's one of the summary statements from this, from this text, and I'll close with this. Practitioners, as to the source through which perceptions and conceptualizations tinged by conceptual proliferation beset a person, if nothing is found there to grasp, this is the end of the underlying tendency to greed, of the underlying tendency to aversion, of the underlying tendency to delusion, of the underlying tendency to doubt, to self-centeredness, of the underlying tendency to hold on to things, of the underlying tendency to ignorance. This is the end of resorting to rods and weapons, quarrels, brawls, disputes, recrimination, malice, and false speech. Therefore, when this happens, these states cease without remainder. So he's basically saying that when we really watch the roots of proliferation in the mind, this is right at the center of transforming suffering and coming to greater freedom. So let's just uh, sit for a moment. Thank you for your kind attention. We have a little bit of time for um, any questions or um, um, noticings. Uh, you had one, please. Um, when you were talking about the lead up to the Iraq War with you know lack of information yeah. and disinformation, I was thinking about the uh, how lately, I guess yesterday in that Republican debate, people in the crowd clapped about blaming people for being unemployed. And I think it's a similar kind of thing that it's just they have no clue what is really going on in there. Yeah, yeah, they're, I mean, it, to everyone here, the, the observation, it was really, um, sounds like being concerned to hear a crowd clapping. I think it was when um, it was essentially saying those who are un- if, if people are unemployed, it's their own fault, mm-hmm. right? One of the one of the candidates, and um, yeah, it may be it may be who knows, but that that all may be way up the ladder, so to speak, or way up at the level of ideology, and not really in touch with the actual experience of very many people who have lost jobs, you know, and and maybe. Uh, maybe a way of thinking that um, they hold to for various reasons. 
you know, but it, it it's, um, may not be based really very much in either their own experience of um, others' experiences who have lost jobs uh, or their own compassion, right? I mean, it's, so it, I think then it's kind of like people are at the level of ideological position. You know, as they were, I remember when similar thing happened when people applauded for the number of executions that occurred in Texas, right? That was also kind of a shocking moment. And again, um, uh, I think we, one could make the same point without being partisan, actually. Uh, so, yeah. So, yeah, I'm, I'm afraid that uh, that world often, that, again, that's what I found when I worked in the U.S. Congress. I found that to be the case, that the politicians were so driven by what they thought was this advantage or that advantage for, the, for election that they actually didn't want to look at the issues. They didn't look at the issues very carefully, but they, it was almost like it was a big game. And there were prearranged positions which were acceptable and some which were not. And they would, but it didn't have much to do with actually looking at the, the um, data and the issues, which was, you know, when I was, I was 18, 19 years old, that was pretty shocking, disillusioning, you know, to, to see that. I was like, oh my God, this is the highest level of government, you know. <laughs> yeah. And uh, again, there are a lot of exceptions and there are, I'm not saying this is monolithic and like my experience was that the people who were on the uh, committees, the staff members of the committees, knew exactly what was happening. They were not so bound to the political world. They knew exactly what was happening, what should be done, but often they were powerless, you know, because the political game was happening in a certain way. So it's hard. Yeah, uh, Marina, please. Samsara. Oh, Sankara. Yeah, um, um, Papancha is conceptual proliferation. It's that movement, like when we um, experience something, maybe in the body or emotion or or thought, or have a perception, and the mind quickly goes to a conceptualization and then more more concepts and more interpretations. Sankara is one of the... um, five aggregates. And I think of that as somewhat synonymous with habits, you know, in English. That's how I like to, would like to translate it. And so it's a little bit different focus, but it's more like saying we have a certain kind of habitual energy, typically which comes from the past. Because I have acted this and that, this or that way in the past, uh, I will tend to act this way. It's like a, what, a habit, uh, an inclination, a tendency um, that's often driven unconsciously. And so uh, that's Sankara, is, it's S-A-N-K-H-A-R-A. And it's one of, in, in the analysis of the Buddha, it's one of the five basic constituents of experience along with bodily experience, with the feeling tone, with perception, and with consciousness, you know, which, which I don't think is, you know, um, what, complete, but it's, it's, a, it's a beginning understanding. And so um, a lot of our papancha is driven by habitual energy. So there is a connection. 
that if we have habitual energy, for example, that is um, distrustful of people, let's say, I will be doing a lot of papancha. If I am generally distrustful of people, it could be for different reasons, or I'm distrustful of certain kinds of people, right? And that's a habit energy that's been developed in the past. That will lead, when I'm with those people, to go way up the ladder of inference pretty quickly. If I have that habit energy, or what, what, uh, what's another kind of habit energy that might be there? What kind of habits might we have? Worry. Yeah, it could be something happens and my habit energy goes to worry. And so that might also be feeding papancha, be feeding conceptual proliferation. Or I might have a habit energy that when I'm feeling emotionally, um, emotionally uh, bad, I, you know, I do certain things. I, you know, watch TV. I eat certain things. I use certain substances. Those can be habit energies, and there can be a, we can be really kind of lost in a whole conceptual proliferation when we're when we have emotional distress. Yeah. So would you say that watching your feelings would actually uh, help seeing the unfolding? Tremendously. Question about watch is watching the feelings important? Yeah, I'm. What I'm suggesting is that there, I, I named probably six or seven different aspects of more direct experience, of which watching the feelings or the emotions and staying with them is a very skillful way to work. You know, I mentioned a f- quite a few of them. I mentioned watching the thoughts, watching emotions, being at the bodily level, watching the uh, sense of pleasant or unpleasant. Actually, just to name those, that's exactly the first three, th- three foundations of mindfulness. Mm-hmm. Those are the classical instructions to stay watching those areas. You know, I, I, thoughts and emotions are brought together as the third foundation. You know, and then I added uh, also notice reactivity, you know, which in a way is part of the fourth foundation, which is like notice when you're starting to... Because reactivity is like a synonym for suffering, basically. Mm-hmm. It's being... Uh, unable to be with the present moment. Mm-hmm. So d- does that get at that? Can Please. One? Yeah. So um, I thought before that this obsessive, you know, rerun in your mind, that it's just a mechanical kind of thing, you know, replay. Yeah. And yesterday I actually caught a very subtle underlying feeling of satisfaction yeah. when the rerun was happening. Yeah. And so I suddenly realized that the rerun was happening because there was this, you know, it could be, I guess, either pleasant or unpleasant yeah. you know, um, reaction to something that caused that. Yeah, that's a great, it's a great point that um, the, the going up the ladder is not simply madness. It's actually a kind of a strategy to deal with a situation. Much like the, you know, the collective example of Iraq. That was a strategy to deal with a situation. It's a strategy, let's not have information take away our clarity. <laughs> right. That's, that's a strategy which makes a certain amount of sense. You know, it's probably in the long run not going to be highly successful. But it's a strategy. You know, and it's a strategy to um, 
find relief in eating if there's emotional distress. That's a strategy which, on a certain level, makes some sense. It works in a certain way. Just as maybe having a lot of negative thoughts and forming a lot of beliefs about the person with whom I have a difficulty is a, is a strategy that gives me, it gives me meaning, it lets me know what to do, blame, <laughs> get away from the person. It's just a, uh, an unwise strategy not based on the ability to be with one's own experience. So it's not based on wisdom. But there can be a certain satisfaction from unwise strategies. And to feel that's quite interesting, you know, and we, it can actually feel good if, if we tune in, maybe it feels good to blame someone else, right? There's a certain satisfaction there, you know. You know with, again, in the Buddhist analysis, that would be part of the mechanism of confusion. Part of the mechanism, we might say, of delusion is, to, is that we actually think that it's working, <laughs> that it's a good idea. But, but it's a great observation. Am I, am I fault tracking you well? Yeah, that they're actually, when we notice it carefully, we can see that going up the ladder is, um, is connected with a sense maybe of resolving a problem. And again, maybe last one, because we're, we're at time. I just wanted to say yeah. that um, it was a wise adaptation at one point. Exactly, yeah. That's right. That's a helpful addition that, especially on a psychological level, much, most of, much of what we are seeing as adult bad habits were the best we could do at a certain age, and they made sense, and they were the best alternative at the time. But we're sort of uh, reworked, we're using them because we don't know another alternative, right? And it's probably, probably could be, that could be true of interpersonal relationships or, uh, you know, the collective level, that people are following some strategy which maybe worked at some time or has some, some track record that, that can work. Maybe survival. Maybe survival, yeah. Um, I think another reason for a lot of compassion. You know, I think the, I'll, I'll end with this, that... Um, and if we, if, we see, if we start looking with these eyes that sees going up the ladder, you'll see it a lot. And we need to also have that quality of the heart and compassion of the awakened heart and compassion be there, both to balance our minds and to not use this kind of knowledge as a, way, as a reason simply to judge or blame. You're going up the ladder. You should, should, should do more mindfulness practice. <laughs> Get it together, <laughs> you know. So to uh, would be the occupational hazard of seeing more clearly is reactive judgment of oneself and others. And so compassion <clears throat> and the heart has to complement all of this. So okay, let's just sit to end for a little bit, and I'll invite you to. Reflect if this has resonated with you on what practice appeals to you now that you might do for the next week. And I would suggest focusing just on one or two. Focus on the 
ways that thoughts proceed or on one's reactivity or on the emotions or the sense of pleasant and unpleasant or to be more grounded in the body, to name the most basic ones. All of these are helpful. So just invite us to sit with your intention, what was most helpful from the morning. Even if it could be related to the theme, but might even not be. Maybe something just sparked something somewhat unrelated. So if that was most important, let that be there. We'll just sit with this for uh, 30 seconds or a minute. And so we close by knowing that our practice are becoming more responsive and less reactive is done both for our own benefit and for the benefit of others. And we uh, dedicate the fruits of the morning to all of us really, all of us here and then beyond Spirit Rock, to all beings without exception. So thank you kindly for your good attention and to be continued. (laughs) Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.